Two grads navigating our 20s together. This is Uncharted 20s with Maya and Sarah. Hello and welcome back to Uncharted 20s. Happy fall. We can't believe how fast the summer went by. It pretty much felt non-existent, but we're excited to continue on with this podcast. Our first two episodes were more getting to know us. Our next two were about quarantine. And this next two-part series that we are planning on doing is a health series. This episode you're going to hear today is still relevant to COVID and the pandemic, but we want to do an episode on how young adults out of college can adjust to living back at home with their families because of the coronavirus. Or even if you're still in college and perhaps you had to stay home this semester. We are at a time period where we are seeing the rise of the new boomerang generation. 52% of young adults are now living back home with their parents, which is up 5% from February when the pandemic started. During the Great Recession, young adults that moved back in with their parents because of the economic crisis were known as the boomerang generation. And we're seeing the same shift happen today because of COVID-19. So clearly this is a topic that will be relatable to a lot of people and we wanted to give advice to all of you on how you can set boundaries, improve family relations, and things of that nature. So we linked up with three different therapists who you're going to hear featured in this episode and it was really interesting to hear their viewpoints on this topic. They talk about how this pandemic has affected therapy and mental health. They give a lot of advice on how to deal with the stresses of living at home with your parents in your 20s and even going through a mid-20s crisis. I don't know if any of you have been experiencing something like that. Sarah had said this was free therapy essentially, so let's get into the interviews. We hope you enjoy this. As always, please support our podcast by rating us and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and you can find us on social media at Uncharted 20s. Let's get into it with introductions from our first two guests. My name is Sarah Higgs. I'm a licensed social worker in Colorado Springs. I work as a behavioral therapist at an inpatient psychiatric hospital. And I'm Katie Trudeau, a licensed clinical social worker, aka therapist, and I work at an outpatient therapy facility. Thank you guys both for being here today. I know I personally have seen a difference in my relationship with my parents as I've become older versus living with them at home as a teenager under their authority. Are there any tips that you guys have in making that transition smoother and building an appropriate adult relationship with your parents after you graduate college or if you move back home with your parents after college? Well, um, after I graduated with my undergrad, I did actually move back home for a little over a year while I was in grad school. That was a big adjustment. I actually found the biggest thing was just that you still live in their house. So you have to like respect house rules. And basically my mom wants to know if she should expect to see my face or not, um, so that she's not worrying that something happened to me. But the other part of to that too, I think, is the parent and kind of their viewpoint of if they see their child as a child or as an adult. Because I think my mom and I kind of talked about that ahead of time, about what expectations would be, which is a very good idea. So I don't know about you, Sarah. but Yeah, I would kind of touch on some of the same things the first being this concept of like creating a new structure or a new dynamic 
young adulthood is a time that people are building financial independence and kind of growing social networks that will be beneficial for them in both their career and then their kind of chosen family down the line. Um, and for parents who might be or might have previously been empty nesters, this is now a transition back kind of into parenthood that maybe they maybe they expected, but maybe they didn't. So coming into it, setting some ground rules and also trying to change the framework from how it had always been. If you kind of move home and move back into your same room and your same patterns and you're sleeping until 11 and maybe you're looking for work, but you're not working just yet, your parents are going to be tempted to see you the way they last saw you, which was a teenager or someone who hasn't gone off to school yet or made the big accomplishments that you now have. Mm -hmm. So talking ahead of time about where you're going to stay, what that schedule is going to look like, what your parents can expect from you. Will you be participating in family events like family dinner Mm -hmm. or things on the weekends? And then where are you going to create that time and space for yourself so that you also feel like an individual and an adult of your own right? So we asked our followers what their biggest struggles were living at home during this pandemic with their parents, and they sent some things in. So we were hoping you could give one or two pieces of advice for each of these. So parents asking you to do chores or errands when you have class or a job. (laughs) Um, You're going to have to do chores and errands um, or at least respect Those are one of those things I think need to be discussed from the Mm -hmm. beginning so you know what the expectations are. And obviously your parents need to know generally what your schedule is like so that you guys can come to a compromise on that. You just negotiate. But ultimately, if you're living under their house, you you do, just like when you live with a roommate, you got to respect and carry some load. So Yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe looking at specifically trying to pick different chores than you did when you were much younger. Um, Could you pick something that's more adult like could you just simply do the grocery shopping and your parents don't even have to drive or go out or um, something related to transportation could you drive a younger sibling or a parent to um, an appointment or something like that where the chore is naturally more adult because a younger person couldn't do it thus reinforcing this idea of being Mm -hmm. independent and a young adult while still contributing which yeah is definitely necessary yeah no that's a good point Mm -hmm. Okay, next one. Still being viewed as a child when you have a whole separate schedule, adult life. It comes down to, um, and my mom and I had talked about this before, that like you just have to show mutual respect as an adult. If you show that respect, then they're probably less likely to treat you like a kid. Because <laughs> they're like, you're an adult, you can handle yourself, and I know you're going to be responsible. And I think there is room also to give gentle reminders occasionally, Um, if parents are falling back into language or expectations or routines that were very common when you were much younger, you know, point that out. They might not notice that they're doing it. Mm -hmm. Hey mom, hey dad, we, you know, we used to do that a long time ago. Let's see if we can make an adjustment that's a better fit for where we're all at now. Another one was constantly checking in on you and asking questions. Mm. I think this is kind of one of those where, it might take, if depending on how much parents are kind of helicopter over mm-hmm. you, I mean, maybe this would take a mediator for you guys to sit down and talk with someone because I think it's very important that you do get that certain level of independence and you don't feel like it's overbearing and that as a young adult, you do take that 
opportunity to show your parents that, you know, I am an adult and Mm I need to have these boundaries still, but I want to do it in a way that's respectful to you. And a possible reframing too, especially if you are a young adult that have recently moved back home after school, consider that your parents might just be like very curious about you. Mm -hmm. Um, You previously lived with them for every day of your life and they knew who your friends were and they knew what you liked to do and now you've been gone for however long probably about four years to go to school and they might be like oh who are your friends now what do you like Mm -hmm. to do where are you going um it might be that they're not truly being nosy or intrusive but they're just kind of curious about who you've become as an adult and I think it's fair to occasionally you know join them in with that you are living with them so I mean, I think discussing with them ahead of time, like how much is your involvement going to be with like family activities and when that can happen um, versus the time when you're going to be like, okay, I'm going to be doing my my me time. This is kind of what we were just saying, um, finding alone time in your separate space. Yeah. I mean, that's for most of us that ends up being, you know, our room. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, That's another thing I think you have to discuss with family ahead of time and kind of set expectations of or like signals for when I say this or I have like a code word for when I just need you to let me be in my room and they're aware okay that's what that means I'm not gonna come and pester them that is so important and being back at home is gonna make that more challenging at the same time if you can work around a known schedule if both your parents are always working at the same time or they always leave the house at the same time of day to go do something like could you schedule your alone time then so that it feels pretty consistent it feels like it won't be interrupted it feels almost like a guarantee and then if you need to ask for it learning how to ask for it but also looking for the more natural times to use Yeah, these were all great tips. And then this last one, we got we got a lot. Yeah. Dating being a challenge. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think it's fair um, to feel like this needs to be something that's given up mm-hmm. um, as a result of the pandemic. But just like working within your comfort zone, doing things that feel safe, that feel informed. And then when talking about like dating at home, we talk again about the nosy mm-hmm. or maybe just curious yeah. um, parent and maybe what it looks like is kind of creating something where you say, you know, mom, if we get to date number two or date number three, I'll tell you all about them. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not yeah. going to tell you about every first date that I go yeah. on. Have you guys heard of the book, The Defining Decade? Yes, we actually mentioned it in our first episode on the podcast. Good. I would plug that for any of your listeners. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it doesn't address the added barrier of like living at home amidst the pandemic and all this uncertainty. But as far as setting goals for dating and career and kind of Mm -hmm. lifelong accomplishments, recognizing that starting in your 20s is usually a good jumping off point for that. And remembering that even if you're living at home or you're not quite living the dream that you pictured for yourself right out of college, that time can, or this time can still be really productive as far as just taking small steps toward what you want you know if you're set back in in one stage right now it's probably not your fault but maybe you feel a little bit set back and you work on something else in the meantime so that it doesn't feel like yeah like a total loss I really like the defining decade the problem with reading in quarantine was 
when you read it, it's like there's this time crunch in your life in your 20s. So within the pandemic, that has been a little stressful to read that. I know that book. So <laughs> that book I read many years ago. And um, for me, it was very motivating. Like, yes, this time yeah. matters. I'm going to do all of this. I think if you if you look at it, just taking a step back, the message really is just to like use your 20s as a productive time. I think some of the maybe deadline type feelings that that book conveys can be a little bit anxiety provoking. Um, but the overall message that this time does matter and the choices that you make now are important, I think are good um, so that people don't feel like they're just in this limbo right now and life doesn't really start until they're 30. Thank you so much to our listeners for submitting your questions. We hope you got a helpful answer. And now we're going to dive into some of the questions that we had prepared as well. How do stresses like a pandemic affect family relations and what can be done about that? It has affected them a lot. I mean, that's the only way we can say it. <laughs> and I think the biggest thing that, that I've noticed is the concern for the family members that do live alone. So, I mean... We have to get creative in spending time with them. We had to be creative, like with my grandmother, where it's, you know, we went and visited her and we sat out in the grass, like picnic style, mm -hmm. and she was up on the porch. And I know she wanted so badly to like hug us and to like touch us. His families are feeling really isolated and a lot of depression kind of rising up. And anxiety too, with mm -hmm. the fact that this isn't something that anyone's experienced successfully before. Yeah. So there's no clear timeline of when this will end or when we can expect things to be different. Mm -hmm. I think especially for those young adults that are living at home now, um, it's even different than what living at home after school looked like previously where, you know, maybe you lived at home, but you still had this like big social space outside of the house that you felt like a grown up and felt independent in. And now you're kind of stuck at home these places where you might go are closed there yeah. might be concern about you know if you live at home and your parents are kind of in that concerning age range should you really be spending time with other people anyway it increases yeah. your exposure and their exposure so suddenly not only are you young and living at home which maybe wasn't ideal to begin with but you're like really really living at home now the door is shut mm -hmm. it's hard to come and go and I think it it adds stress and it adds anxiety and depression to families that are already dealing with a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, and I've actually seen it affect like almost tearing certain families apart because of differing views of the virus itself mm -hmm. and how we should handle it. Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest thing for families, like I have know a client who like their, their wedding, their sister's wedding is getting torn apart because there's disagreement over masks or not masks or having weddings or not having weddings. Cause <laughs> I know Miss Sarah had to postpone her wedding. I did. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to really respect just like political views. I know how hard it is to accept when someone has a different opinion on the mask, but I mean, don't let it tear apart your family, you know? Yeah. As part of that, mm -hmm. it might be tempting for parents to never want their adult children to go out and to be very concerned about that. But perhaps there's room for compromise if you're meeting people outside or being safe about it. Have you noticed new cases of anxiety and depression or how has this, I guess, affected your practice and patients? Well, it's interesting because I'm on the outpatient side and Sarah's on inpatient. Mm -hmm. So on the outpatient side, 100%, um, everybody I have seen 
has the same complaint of sitting in front of the computer screen and everybody cannot focus, I think is the biggest one. So it's causing, it's causing huge issues and tons of anxiety in a lot of different ways. Anxiety over how our performance and missing assignments. Also, the thing that I've thought was interesting is I feel like some of my socially anxious kids and students might actually attach to it too much because they do get the barrier of getting to stay at home. So I honestly worry about like some of the social anxiety increasing in a sense as well. So what about it for you? Mm -hmm. Well, and then on the inpatient end, traditionally and consistently every summer that I've worked at the hospital, we've seen a decrease in our child and adolescent admissions over the summer. Essentially what we see is when school ends and there's this freedom to kind of be independent without the pressures of school and bullying and academics and everything that comes with that, we get a huge census drop in the summer. Mm -hmm. Um, We might go from 40 kids across two units to something like 15, 13 kids. This summer, it was the exact opposite. We've been pretty much full census since probably late April or maybe May, and we carried that all the way through the summer where we typically see that drop and kids are feeling a little bit better. Instead, they're coming, coming in feeling socially isolated, feeling all this pressure from their parents because they're at home way more, a lot more arguing, a lot of kids running away from home where they feel trapped and they feel like they can't get out and do what they want to do. And then even some of our younger kids who just struggle to understand the concept of quarantine and isolation and pandemic and you know, it's just frustrating and it's hard for them. What is being suggested? How can this be explained to them? Because I was wondering that, how parents are doing that. So it is hard. First, it's just the reframing so that they, to the best of their understanding, don't view it as a punishment. It's hard for kids that age to really understand and empathize with others. So simply telling them, well, everyone has to do this doesn't really resonate or sit well with them. So trying to just explain in the simplest of terms that for people to be healthy, for people to be safe, this is what we're doing right now. And then parents have been pretty creative with trying to set up things at home that maybe they hadn't done before, try new things so that kids don't feel like they're missing out. I mean, they lost their whole summer, which is hard. And now, like Katie was saying, they're headed back into a new school year with all these added stressors and barriers. Yeah, I did also want to ask you both how you think virtual learning will affect development for kids. It's, yeah, it's a concern depending on how long this lasts. And I think the screen time is huge. My biggest concern is the amount of time of just sitting and how that does affect. I have plenty of people that are complaining of migraines that are complaining of lots of back problems. And I'm trying to convince my younger kids and my teens, my young adults about getting more exercise and like especially exercise in the morning before you're going to be sitting there all day because it's usually we're walking back and forth through classes Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think similarly, and I haven't heard this globally either, but far less concern for like academic progress. I think kids are resilient and they're capable of learning. And even if they get behind a little bit in the first semester of this year, or maybe even the whole year. Mm -hmm. I think there's always going to be, for the most part, time to catch up on that. But the social and emotional development 
is going to be way more difficult with being away from peers, which is being away from your friends and your supports, but also being away from conflict. Yeah. Like learning how to get along with people that are not your friends typically happens at school because the people you don't like are not the people that come over to your house all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so learning how to communicate, learning how to get along in like a college setting to cohabitate, but even in just an elementary setting to sit next to someone, to share a room, to share a desk. And then my co-host Sarah has brought this up before, but how do you think missing milestones affects development? I think what you'll see more of is just a little bit of insecurities and uncertainties in kids when they ultimately do return to school um, just because they've been away from it and the time that they would typically have to kind of build that confidence yeah. isn't there. And I think the milestones for teens as you're getting closer to young adulthood, there's like that's the developmental stage of like self-identity versus role confusion. And there's a lot of role confusion going on right now with, with our young adults. Like, especially when we talk about them maybe having to go back home or a lot that have tried to go off to college and it's just been too different and too scary that they end up coming back. It's interesting that you guys were talking about social anxiety. I feel like before the pandemic started, a lot of us we're very social and outgoing and always wanted to see our friends. A lot of my friends in college were like that. But since the pandemic came about, a lot of us have had social anxiety in terms of like hanging out with anyone and might have social anxiety for years to come after this, which is crazy that that happened. But is there any advice on how to kind of ease social anxiety when you might not have been like that before or do you think it'll take like the pandemic ending for it to kind of like get back to our normal selves in a way I think it's kind of the way usually from a therapeutic standpoint how we approach you know phobias and things that Mm -hmm. develop is like you have to make small manageable goals to get yourself out there again you know starting with things that are small and starting with hanging out with you know, one friend at a time before you're going to groups or hanging out outside before you're, you know, going to be closed indoors. So, I mean, that's how we approach fears. You know, if they're the thing that's hard is with this pandemic, you know, it's been pretty rational to be afraid of this virus, but it's like at some point we might hit to where we know that we're safe or that we're beyond that. And it becomes an irrational fear that people have kind of stored and that's how we approach irrational fears. You have to desensitize with like small manageable goals um, and seek out, you know, support of therapists or of your family in that process. Mm -hmm. So because this whole thing has completely shifted the way we see other people, our friends who used to be our safety nets and the people that cared about us, those people are now the people putting us at risk. Mm -hmm. Um, We can't look at someone and know if this is exposure for us and then exposure to our family. And that certainty makes everyone kind of this big question mark. So even the people that we care the most about are suddenly people that, you know, it makes sense to be just a little bit fearful and a little bit uncertain of. So shifting back out of that is going to take time. That's a really interesting perspective. I never thought about it. It's like the people that we trusted before. It's kind of like, you know. Do you think that there will be a shift in college graduates moving back home even after the pandemic is over? I think it's definitely possible. And it depends, I think, on how long this lasts for. 
I know right now the numbers of, you know, millennials, Gen Z having to live at home has gone up a pretty large percentage. So I would imagine just like anything, it takes time for that percentage to kind of come back down. And I think we will see more of a struggle with the mental health aftermath that could cause that to be an issue too. You know, the residual stresses that have developed from the pandemic itself. And then honestly, things that have occurred while the pandemic has happened, a lot of people I think kind of going back to those issues with family members or things, you know, not feeling safe with people or places that we once felt safe. Like, I think there's just going to be a little bit of time that that has to be dealt with. And that might take, you know, not like forever living at home, but I mean, I personally think it's pretty normal sometimes to temporarily live at home at some point in your young adult life. And I feel most people, a lot of people do. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I know for the most part, millennials are like a few years out of school at this point. So probably have lower rates of moving back home. Mm -hmm. I think one of the bigger risks for millennials that do have to move back home is kind of this return to identity confusion and this idea of loss. Have they lost a job and they had to move back home? Are they unable to afford their rent? Mm -hmm. Essentially this idea that maybe they did have something established that they kind of lost hold of, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to maybe your Gen Z that are graduating Um, and moving back home while they're looking for work or while they're kind of getting themselves established. I think for the most part, most parents are pretty understanding, but maybe more understanding if you're stepping from college back home as opposed to being in the workplace or being independent, stepping back home and kind of the challenges of that. For the most part, I think we can agree. Your parents always want like the best for you. So I think whenever the stigma comes from moving back home, it's like, It's the pressure of like, I want the best from you. Do you have a plan? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you can at least work on that with them, I think it takes away some of the stigma or some of the push a little bit. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on Uncharted 20s. It was really great to have you and to share all your wisdom. Thank you guys so much. (laughs) Now we are going to hear from our third therapist. Thanks for coming on our podcast. Do you mind just sharing your name and what you do? Sure. My name is David Wood. I'm a licensed professional counselor and I provide outpatient psychotherapy and neurofeedback. Have you noticed with the pandemic and your work a difference with your patients and work in general? Absolutely. It's been very hard. A lot of, oh goodness, Um, depression. Uh, has certainly been exacerbated. Uh, Symptoms of isolation and social cutoff. There's also been an interesting dynamic. Um, For like eight years now that I've been doing this professionally, I've been trying to encourage parents and new professionals to create healthy boundaries uh, between their home life and their work life. And now what, like 40% of the population's working from home. (laughs) So that's been interesting, trying to establish um, a very rigid structure and schedule. Like these are my work hours. Now I'm on the clock right now I'm working and and if possible to create a, a specific environment within their home, say, you know, this is my office, this is where I do work and keep it separate from your personal home life. But yeah, overall there's been a lot of negative symptomology for depression, anxiety, addiction has also been exacerbated immensely. 
So do you think it's only people who already had these issues that's being exacerbated or do you think there's a lot of new cases from this? Yeah, there's a lot of new cases. I think the, you know, it, it is circumstantial and I don't like to diagnose, especially adolescents, and young adults. I don't like to diagnose them with depression because of a temporary circumstance. But a lot of young adults and adolescents have been coming in with full on depression symptoms due to isolation because they, many of them are um, extroverts and they haven't gotten to see friends and actually spend time like in proximity closeness with their peers and friends for seven months now. And it's not been good. How can, so family members and your parents help with some of that? Because I feel like a lot of like family members might not necessarily know the signs of that if they've never ex- seen their kids having that experience before. Um, just establishing intentional, maybe new uh, methods of communication. Actually following through with setting aside some family time to sit down and check in. Um, parents taking the lead on that and and framing it to their kids like, hey, this is a new scenario. We've never experience anything like this. We've never had a full quarantine lockdown where healthy people who don't currently have an active virus in their body have been asked to stay home and stay inside and socially isolate. So I I would say parents taking the lead with that and saying, hey, this is uncharted territories for us and it's been really hard and not be vague, but be precise to, uh, for parents to speak like, this is how this has been difficult for me. I miss my my friends, I miss my coworkers. I don't feel as productive during the day because I can work in my pajamas or whatever. But to be intentional about modeling that kind of vulnerability for their, for their young adults or for their kids. Could you talk a little bit about the rise of telehealth during all of this? In regards to telehealth, COVID has been a blessing, which is, you know, heresy to say. We have had the internet and Zoom and Skype and Skype in the past hasn't met the very restrictive and unnecessarily restrictive uh, HIPAA requirements as far as like, you know, secure connections and things as such. Um, But during 2020, all of that was lifted. And so essentially any form of video communication or video chat, and if the video chat doesn't work, then just telephone, cell phone included, has been made available for billable um, telepsychology, telepsychology, telemedication management uh, services which is awesome. And it should have been this way for a long time. There are people who struggle with severe depression, you know, psychosis, schizophrenia, you know, delusional behaviors uh, and, and thinking. People who are very reliant on a weekly um, therapy or biweekly therapy sessions to keep them stable, keep them out of the hospital, things like that. And if they're feeling under the weather or their car breaks down or something like that. And then they just have to cancel services sometimes the day of, and then they get billed fees and fine, you know, for same day cancellations and things, as opposed to now where we can just pick up the phone. It should have been happening a long time ago. And so it's here now, which is awesome. One thing that I was talking with some other professionals in my office about, uh, Katie included, because we do peer consultation on a, about a biweekly basis. The difference between telehealth and actually sitting in the room in the same proximity as a patient or a client Um, There certainly are mannerisms and body language that you can't read because they're not on the screen. However, we're much, much closer face to face. And so there's still this vulnerability, you know, of like, because in my office, we're 10 feet apart. And when we're face to face, we're seriously a couple inches from the screen, each one of us. 
so we're we're that much closer. We're we're kind of more in each other's space, visually speaking, and, and as far as reading face uh, facial cues, eye movements, things like that. And you know, our faces are very expressive when we're talking about nonverbal communication. And so there is a little bit of a loss, but there's also a little bit of a gain. Adults seem to have a harder time with teletherapy than kiddos do. Uh, young adults, you know, I assume people your age, you've been using a cell phone since you were in middle school, probably. Um, you know, most of us, myself included, like I didn't have a cell phone until I was in college. Overall, it's been harder. There are people who really don't like having to use telehealth and maybe right now it's their only option, so it's better than nothing but they would much rather be in in person, but because of a health concern, they're high risk or they have pre-existing conditions, they, they just can't take that chance, so. I was wondering if there were any rules with talking to patients through telehealth and like if you have other family in your home. So that is up to them. It's something that I, I try to be, sometimes I forget, I try to be intentional about reminding them that, hey, um, we're gonna have a, a serious conversation and I'm gonna, say things and ask you questions that I know about you and bring up topics that I know about you because we've talked about them in the past. And so I'm assuming that whoever is around you, whoever is within earshot, you're okay with them hearing our conversation. And if you're not, you need to get up and move. Um, I, I work, I have a lot of sessions with people sitting on their phones in their cars, like in their garage. Mm. So they're still at home, they're on their Wi-Fi, but there's nobody around. There are certainly times of day early afternoon where Zoom just doesn't work because there's who knows how many millions of people currently on it. And so it's laggy and the picture sucks and you can't hear people and you break up. And that's, that's really tough when you're right in the midst of mm. somebody sharing something profoundly vulnerable and, and hurtful. They're pouring their heart out. Maybe it's the first time they've ever shared it and the freaking computer freezes yeah. or they cut out and it's like, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Oh my God. It's, it's as a therapist, like that's, it's gut wrenching to do that, to ask people, you know, and then you get in this moment of panic, like, oh, should I just play it mm -hmm. off and, and hope that they'll kind of reiterate it and I can fill in the gaps from what I just lost. It's hard to do, mm -hmm. um, especially with new patients. And we, I have done a handful of new patient intake, like uh, psychotherapy evaluations and I've never met them in person. And that's, that's tough. So Generation Z and Millennials are now living at home, as we know, and both generations are seen to be very hardworking, go-getters, independent. Do you think that there will be a shift in young adults, college graduates moving back home even after that pandemic is over? As far as the independence and the pursuit of autonomy, um, from what I've read in my interactions with my clientele and my demographic of patients, I, I see actually a pretty big difference between millennials and Generation Zers. I, see, I do see Generation Zers as more autonomous, more seeking independence, more kind of that go-getter mentality. Whereas millennials, I, I don't see that to be the case. And we see that with, um, young adults who don't have their driver's license, for instance, there's a, a, a very high, high percentage, you know, in relation to the generation prior and after um, of millennials who didn't pursue their driver's license, which is the personification of freedom at an age at which they were able, you know, they waited several years or sometimes even longer, or even at times when they were coerced by their parents to finally go out and get it. So 
I don't really see that being an issue for Generation Zers. I do think that they strive to, uh, for autonomy and, and more independence, of course, generalizing. But okay. with millennials, I, I have actually experienced that even prior to the pandemic. But definitely uh, it has been exaggerated by the pandemic. A lot of people moving back home in between jobs or laid off or, you know, those who have been put on furlough from work. I know that, at least in my family's background, we're South Asian and it's really acceptable and normal to live with your family after school. Mm -hmm. I guess American culture is not like that. So do you think that negative stigma along with this will end after this pandemic? Yeah, that's actually a really good question and a really good point. I certainly hope that maybe one of the silver linings from this experience in the pandemic will be that some of that stigma will be alleviated that it's not a big deal for college graduates to move back in with their family before they start a career or, you know, if they haven't developed a family yet. So we've been seeing a lot of this on social media, but a lot of adults and postgraduates claim to be going through this mid-20s crisis, midlife crisis in their 20s right now from taking that step back, living at home, being in a pandemic, reflecting on their career, realizing that they don't love it from being quarantined all of these months. So what's some advice for changing up your lifestyle now and becoming happier as a young adult? Um, to set realistic goals within a realistic uh, framework or timeline. Um, I, I work with a lot of young adults, like late teens, early 20s, and we're talking about what they're pursuing in college and what they want to see happen in their life and come into fruition in their efforts and endeavors. And I tell people that they do not by any means have to figure out what they're doing with the rest of their lives. When I was in graduate school, I was in my late 20s, like 26, 27, and everybody was twice my age. And it's because everybody had had a previous career or there was mothers whose children had grown and left school. And, you know, so that coming out of college and moving into, you know, a professional endeavor is really similar to, quote unquote, a midlife crisis, because it's like, you know, we have these thoughts of, oh, my gosh, what have I done? Is this what I really want to do? Is this going to be satisfying or meaningful for me? And so I, I really encourage people to have healthy expectations and a realistic expectation on, you know, what is it that you think your job is going to do for you? You know, is, is it, you know, and, and you, you use the word happiness. Um, that's like a, a no word for me in my, in my, uh, right. in my office because I think happiness is very superficial and very and just not yeah. and not important. I think helping people prioritize things like meaningfulness, to live with integrity, to live it like lovingly as far as like sacrifice and putting other people before yourself. I think that's one way that I've been able to help people find contentment and most importantly peace in this season that's been very chaotic. Um, you know, because we're all kind of in this together and none of us really like it. None of us are really like stoked about this situation. But if we're putting other people before ourselves, um, we're, we can still find a, some kind of semblance of peace and contentment with our circumstances. But one thing that I, I read recently, the food pantry here in town, for the most part, they have not gone without. And, and in some situations, they've actually even seen an increase in their donations which is pretty astounding considering we put, you know, 50 million Americans have been out of work. We still see a huge amount of self-sacrifice and people putting others' needs before themselves. And so that ability to look at your circumstances and say, man, this sucks, 
maybe I can't do much about this right now, but the realization that it, it's pretty hard on everyone and some people are probably struggling more than me, maybe I can do something about that, gives us a, a motivation for um, to pursue gratitude, I think, in our current circumstances. Yeah, that's interesting. I literally was listening to a podcast this morning from Vox's Today Explained, and they were talking about how mm-hmm. donations have gone up. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's very cool. So I guess just closing it up, what do you think, in your opinion, will be the after effects of a long period of isolation like this for so many people? As a profound introvert, <laughs> I'm kind of hoping that maybe more people will understand introversion and extroversion. There are people who have a, a preference of extroversion but are still temperament-wise introverted and vice versa. There are people who are extroverted, but they prefer introversion. But I hope people being able to have a better understanding for for the other temperament. You know, and one thing that we talk a lot about when we do family counseling is being intentional about time together. And there's been so much time together. And most of the families that I've worked with, and my own family included, my brothers who all live in town, my parents, my wife and children, we probably haven't taken the best advantage of the opportunity that we have. And, you know, instead of being focused on it as a crisis, it's like, this is an opportunity. We have multiple more hours every single day together. And in that regard, it's quite a blessing. That's a good point. Every podcast or book that I read talks about that, like focusing on like the gratitude, especially in situations like that. So that's super important. And definitely about happiness being superficial and just like something that you're trying to reach but you're never going to truly be happy yeah yeah um something i i tell a lot of people and i've definitely experienced my own life um through my own experiences with alcoholism and being an addict and being pursuing sobriety as well as helping addicts and people with mental health struggles has been um gratitude is the antidote for self-pity and and like self-imposed despair gratitude is the antidote just being intentional, like a quick Google search of your community will find multiple, a dozen uh, opportunities for volunteering. And, you know, that can promote everything that we've already spoken about, gratitude and uh, service to others. We hope you all learned as much in this week's episode as Maya and I did. If you are currently living at home or if you are considering moving back, we understand you, we are with you, and we hope that this episode provided you with a free therapy session with some coping mechanisms. And we also hope that this episode provided you with some insights on some resources that are actually improving from the pandemics, such as telehealth, where people might not have had these resources beforehand. Lastly, if you are struggling with mental health, we encourage you to reach out to your family and your friends, seek out therapy, and we're also gonna provide some resources in our description for this episode. We'll talk to you next time in the next episode in our health series about nutrition for young adults and especially during the pandemic. Thanks again for tuning in.